So let's give our attention to God's Word as we read together. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castornets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his own house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord, and I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes." But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His word. Let's pray. 
Father, we do acknowledge that You are the God who speaks. You have spoken, Father, clearly and definitively and without error in the Word of God, the Old and New Testaments. And here in Your Word, Father, You show us what You are like. You show us how we ought to come into Your presence, Father. And mostly, You show us the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that we would listen today with ears of faith and that we would respond to Your Word as we ought. Father, please give us grace to continue trusting in Christ. And please use this moment of speaking and teaching from the Scriptures to build us up in the faith. Father, grant me faithfulness to the Scriptures and grant Your people discernment that we might grow in the truth. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Few issues among Christians have as much potential to generate controversy as does the issue of worship. What should Christians do when they gather together to worship God? What should we do? Should we sing hymns or choruses? Should pastors wear robes or not? Should we make use of artwork and images? Or should we simply stick with words, both spoken and sung? You see, there are a whole host of questions that demand our attention when we come to the issue of worship. But even beyond such questions, even beyond the theoretical, the hypothetical, many of us have probably personally experienced what are sometimes called worship wars. Have you ever been in a church that had one of those? Where people divide over their preferences in the act of worship, one side insisting that their preferences be enshrined as law, while another side refusing to do so? Those kinds of conflicts are never good. And they certainly don't maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as our church covenant would say. But perhaps the worst aspect of these so-called worship wars is their ability to obscure what's really important. For all of the questions related to the practice of worship, the key issue is not what, but who. Instead of arguing what we ought to do, the church's utmost concern in worship should be who God is. In fact, it's only by keeping the who question at the forefront that we're able to get the what question right. You see, worship is biblical when it prioritizes first and foremost the character of God and then only secondarily our response to that character. Friends, the great tragedy in our day is not that some groups sing hymns while others prefer choruses. No, the great tragedy in our day is that in fighting over the what, we've lost sight of the who the glorious and almighty God. As we come to 2 Samuel 6, we find the people of God in David's day are dealing with a similar tragedy. Israel in 2 Samuel 6 is in the midst of a worship decline. Actually, you could probably call it a worship famine. They've missed both the what and the who. Under King Saul, the worship of God has faded almost to the point to where the absence is now unnoticed. I mean, ask yourself, friends, since, Saul, since the Lord rejected Saul back in 1 Samuel, do you remember reading anything about Israel's worship after that? No, because it's not there. Under King Saul, the worship of God has faded. And nowhere is that more evident than in the fate of the Ark of the Covenant that gets the attention in this chapter. On its own, the Ark of the Covenant was not all that significant. It was a small wooden box covered in a thin layer of gold. On its own, it's not that big of a deal. 
But for Israel's worship, the Ark of the Covenant was of utmost significance, for it represented the very presence of God on earth. By the time we get to 2 Samuel 6, however, the Ark has been in the shadows for 50 or perhaps even 60 years. It's been under house arrest, so to speak, in the, in the care of this man, Abinadab. So decades have passed. Decades have passed with the Ark of the Covenant on the sidelines. And all the while, Israel's worship of God has steadily declined to the point where no one even seems to notice that something is wrong. All of that changes, however, in today's passage. This chapter marks a reformation of sorts in Israel's worship of God. There's a new king in Israel, and with that new king comes a new beginning for Israel's worship. It's a reformation. And that's where we find the significance for us from this text, brothers and sisters. As we witness David reform Israel's worship, we learn something about our own life together. We learn something about our own worship of God. You see, David's reformation takes us out of the realm of of worship wars and returns our focus to where it should be. To the kind of worship that honors the Lord God for who He is. Specifically, there are three lessons we must take from David's reformation. Three lessons that lead us on to God-honoring worship. The first lesson is absolutely foundational, and it comes in verses 1-4. to God's presence must be cherished. God's presence must be cherished. It shouldn't be lost on us, friends, that one of David's first acts after conquering Jerusalem is to retrieve the Ark of the Covenant. Notice the progression from chapter 5 to chapter 6. Chapter 5, the Philistines had been routed, so now there is peace in the land. Things are secure enough for David to focus on his own kingdom. And what's the first thing that gets the king's attention? Worship. As David decides to bring up the Ark of the Covenant. The description of the ark in verse 2 emphasizes the significance of David's description. Notice how the ark is described. As the ark of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Cherubim are angels. They were constructed on the ark. Their wings curved inward, almost meeting at the top. That's the mercy seat. The ark is described here as the ark of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on those cherubim. Think of what happened, friends, between those two cherubim on the ark. Think of what happened there. It was there that atonement was made for God's people as blood was sprinkled each year by the high priest. What's more, the cherubim also pointed to God's revelation of Himself. Think back to Exodus 25 where God gave the instructions for building the ark. Do you remember what the Lord said would happen there above the cherubim? God said He would speak to Moses from above those Angels. You see, the ark was not only the place of atonement. As amazing as that is, the ark was also the place of revelation. It was here that Moses, the man of God, would hear from the Lord and then bring God's Word to His people. So mercy and revelation and grace are all happening there at the ark of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned above the cherubim. So friends, do you see how David's decision is actually a teaching moment? He's just become the king over all Israel. 
What's the first thing he does? He goes to get the Lord's ark. By acting quickly to bring the ark to Jerusalem, David is teaching his people that there is one thing they cannot live without, and it's not him. It's God. It's the Lord. Yes, David is the promised king. David is the one whom God has raised up, but it's the Lord whom His people should cherish. It's the Lord who the people must pursue. It's the first lesson from David's Reformation, friends. God's presence must be cherished above all. And yet we're faced with the question at this point. How exactly do we cherish God's presence in our day? I'm sure you noticed that we don't have the Ark of the Covenant this morning. What's more, we don't have any other religious relics that we can gather around to demonstrate our desire for God's presence. In fact, we would avoid any use of such relics. And so, the question remains. If the presence of God is to be cherished above all, then how do we as Christians do that? Well, the answer, brothers and sisters, is by making much of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of all the ark signified and and consider how that significance is now embodied in the Lord Jesus. The Ark of the Covenant symbolized God's presence dwelling among His people. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth not His golden ark, but His only Son, God in the flesh, so that God's presence has come to us not in a box, but in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Ark of the Covenant was the place of God's mercy in atonement where the blood of the Lamb was sprinkled for the sins of the people. But at the cross, that same mercy in atonement was demonstrated once for all as Jesus the Lamb of God shed His own blood to finally and forever satisfy the wrath of God against the sins of God's people. The ark represented God's revelation to His people. One of the places where the invisible God made Himself known. But now we have the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, at the end of the day, the Ark of the Covenant was just a box. It was temporary. And it pointed God's people to something better. Or we should say, to someone better. To God the Son. Jesus the incarnate Savior and Lord of the church. So how should we respond to verses 1-4? to How should we respond when David decides to bring up the Ark of the Covenant? What should we do? We should be renewed in our desire to know Christ. To make much of Him. To remember His Gospel. And to build up His church. All that the Ark signified has now come to us in the flesh and blood person of the Lord Jesus. If you want to mimic David's wholehearted devotion, then make much of Christ. It's foundational for true worship, friends. God's presence must be cherished above all. And we do so today by focusing all of our affection and all of our praise on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Reformation keeps going. And in verses 5-7, to we find our second lesson from King David. But this time it comes in sobering form. God's holiness must be honored. God's presence must be cherished and God's holiness must be must be honored. Now, as you might expect, the ark's procession towards Jerusalem begins with joy. You can see it there in verse 5. There are songs and celebration. Everyone is glad, it seems, to have found the ark and to see it coming to the city. But despite that initial joy, there's actually a hint 
that this process is headed for trouble. Notice again verse 3, where the text says they loaded the ark on a new cart. That little detail is the key to what's about to happen. God's Word was crystal clear on this point, friends. The Ark of the Covenant was not to be transported on a cart. The Ark was to be carried by Levitical priests. Again, Exodus 25 tells the story. God instructed Moses to make the Ark with two rings on each side so that poles could be inserted and the Ark could be carried on the shoulders of the priests. It was very clear. The poles were actually never supposed to be taken out again. What's more, the ark was not to be touched at any point in the process. You weren't even supposed to look at it, let alone touch it. Don't look at it, don't touch it. I mean, just listen to the clarity of God's Word, this time from Numbers 4. You don't need to know anything about Hebrew to get this. They must not touch the holy things lest they die. It's crystal clear. It's mercifully clear. The ark was to be carried and never touched. All of that to say, verse 3 should get your attention. It might be convenient to put the ark on a cart, but convenience is rarely ever the pathway to holiness. It might be convenient, but it's a decision that will surely bring trouble. And sure enough, trouble comes in verse 6. The road to Jerusalem was apparently pretty bumpy. And along the way, the oxen slipped, the cart jostled, and the Ark of the Covenant began to teeter there on the edge. I mean, you can imagine the scene, can't you? The sacred Ark of God is seconds away from falling into the mud and the grime of the Jerusalem highway. What would you do? Well, you'd probably do what Uzzah did. He reached out his hand to steady the Ark. It's instinctual, it's understandable. And it's also wrong. Notice verse 7. We'll read it again just to get the force of the moment. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark. Uzzah dies for his presumption. Yes, that's right. I said presumption. Uzzah presumed that the Lord needed his help. Uzzah presumed that God's holiness was in danger of being defiled by the dirt, so Uzzah reached out his own dirty hand to help the holy God. But that's just it, friends. The holy God does not need help from unclean sinners like Uzzah, or like us for that matter. God doesn't need our help. God doesn't need anything. And He certainly doesn't need our help. What He does demand is our obedience and submission to His Word. You see, if Uzzah wanted to honor God's holiness, then he should have obeyed God's Word and carried the ark as the Lord said. The problem here didn't begin with Uzzah reaching out his hand. The problem began when they put the ark on that cart. It was at that point when God's people set aside the Word of God that the Lord's holiness was dishonored. That the Lord's holiness was forgotten and minimized. Please do not miss this, friends. God's anger here is not arbitrary, and it's not wrong. The Lord is doing exactly what He said He would do. The commands of His Word were a means of grace to keep His people from danger. But those means of grace were set aside. They were neglected. They were forgotten for the sake of convenience. 
And the result is precisely what God said it would be. Uzzah touched the ark, and God killed him. Friends, this sober moment contains a world of instruction for us. But for the sake of time and clarity, I'll bring only two takeaways to your attention. The first is this. We must beware of any practice that reduces God to someone who is essentially like us. We must beware of any practice that reduces God to someone who is essentially like us. By all means, I want Christians to know that God desires relationship with them. That God wants to know them and care for them. Those things are wonderfully true. Praise God. But at the same time, if you look around at what passes for evangelical worship these days, you'll find an easy breezy kind of attitude that's not helpful but confusing. From the songs we sing to the trivial way we approach the Scriptures, it seems that we think God is basically like us, just on a slightly elevated level. In fact, we've so thoroughly domesticated God that we find it hard to see His glory in passages like the one we have before us. So discouraged and frustrated to read sources on this chapter this week that spent page after page after page trying to explain God away. You can't domesticate Him and keep the Bible. You can't contain Him and still worship Him. God's not like us, brothers and sisters. He's not like us. He is utterly set apart. That's what it means to be holy. When we say holy, 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 we're saying, God, You're not like me. And I'm not like You. He is utterly set apart, distinct and pure. He dwells in unapproachable light. And we must never, for any reason, take that lightly. Any practice in worship that minimizes God's holiness should not only be avoided, but repented of. But let's not just cast stones out there. Let's look, let's look personally, right? So ask yourself. Just take a moment of reflection and just ask yourself, does my view of God have room to account for verse 7? That God struck this man down. Does my view of God have room to account for that verse? Before anything else you do here, ask yourself, is my response one of worship before this holy God who is the same yesterday and today and forever? It's not like there's an Old Testament God and then a New Testament God that's nice. Wrong. That's heresy. There's one God. The holy God. Ask yourself, before anything else, is my response here to worship? Or... Have I domesticated God to such a degree that I essentially have no eyes to see the glory of His unapproachable holiness? God's not like us. And we must beware of any practice that reduces God to someone who essentially is. Second takeaway. We must remember that God's Word governs our worship. God's Word governs our worship. This is the other side of the coin to God's holiness. If God is so absolutely holy and set apart, then on what basis could we ever hope to worship Him? The answer, friends, is only on the basis of His Word. It's only on the basis of His Word. Yes, God is the Holy One 
who dwells in unapproachable light. But He has not left us alone. The Holy God has not been silent. Amen? He has spoken clearly and graciously in the Scriptures. And His Word tells us how we must approach Him. And therefore, if we want to worship God as we ought, then we must offer our worship according to the Bible. This is why our practice at Midtown Baptist is to sing the Bible, read the Bible, pray the Bible, and preach the Bible. Even the order of our service is intended to follow Scripture's pattern. We praise God for who He is. We confess our sin before Him. We bring our petitions in prayer. And then we feast together on the truth of the Scriptures. From beginning to end, we're seeking to worship God according to His Word. Because His Word governs our worship. Honestly, friends, this is one of the more important points the church in our day needs to hear. And it just comes straight from this chapter. Just straight from the Bible. Israel was not free to worship God however they wanted. A cart might have been convenient, but it was not in accords with God's Word. And so it is in our day. We do not have the authority to worship God however we would like. We don't have that authority. Let me state it plainly, friends. Convenience and personal preference are not determining factors in the worship of God. He is God. We are not. And therefore, we must come to Him on the basis of what He has spoken. The Word of God must govern our worship of God. And I want to be clear at this point, by ordering our worship according to the Scriptures, we're not trying to be old-fashioned or high-minded. I had somebody say to me once, I really like coming to your church because you sing all those old songs and I don't like new songs. And I wanted to be like, congrats on missing the point, friend. We're not trying to be old-fashioned or high-minded. We're seeking to honor the Lord's holiness. You see, the two takeaways go together. And it's so important that we get this. Practically, The way we honor the holy God is by submitting ourselves to what He has said. We can't see God. He's not here. He's not here physically. He's here spiritually. He's not here physically. We can't go before Him and bow down and honor His holiness visibly in a way that people can see. So how do we act? How do we respond to His holiness that shows that we honor it? By obeying His Word. By submitting to what He has said. If we set aside His Word, we are in essence defying Him. We're claiming to know better than He he does. And worst of all, we're even recasting the Holy God in our own image. Friends, may we never do this. May we learn from Uzzah and remember that we've gathered today in the presence of the Holy God. This then is the second lesson for our worship. God's holiness must be honored. And we do so by worshiping Him according to His Word. That brings us to the third and final lesson from David's Reformation. This time in verses 8-23. to God's people must embrace humility. God's presence must be cherished. God's holiness must be honored. And God's people must embrace humility. Following Uzzah's death, it takes David some time to discern the right response 
In fact, David's initial response is somewhat misguided. Notice again verses 8 to 10. At first, David is angry with the Lord. He doesn't understand why God did this. Why such a fierce response to such a seemingly little mistake. So perhaps David himself has domesticated the holy God to some degree. But David's anger quickly turns to fear. The king makes the necessary connection. If this is what the holy God is like, then how could I possibly risk bringing Him into my city? (laughs) I don't want that in my city. You see, for a time, David loses sight of the provision God has made in His Word. All David can see is the Lord breaking out against Uzzah. That's why he renames that place, Perez Uzzah. The Lord breaking out. That's all David can see, and it scares him. David has forgotten, at least for a moment, the means of grace given in God's law. Mercifully, however, the Lord doesn't leave David in his fear. Notice the Lord's kindness, verse 11. The ark is kept in the house of Obed-Edom, and during that time the Lord pours out great blessing on the entire household. Now, it's quite likely that this Obed-Edom is the same Obed-Edom in 1 Chronicles 15, who is there identified as a Levitical priest. It's probably the same guy. If that's the case, then this man would have known the prescriptions of God's law. He's a priest. He would have known the law's prescriptions, and this man seems to have followed them, which is why the blessing comes on his house, because he treats the ark the way that he should. So notice what God is doing here, friends. He's giving David a merciful correction. David is afraid, and instead of just giving up on David, the Lord says to him, if you honor my word, then my presence is not to be feared, but received with joy. If you honor my word, then my holiness brings you blessing, not terror. You see the Lord's kindness, friends? I mean, it's so stark. He just struck a man down, and now he is kindly and patiently bearing with David. That's the biblical God, friend. Severity and kindness together in one glorious person. David was angry and then fearful, so the holy God patiently but clearly brings the correction. And the turnaround for David is stunning. Beginning in verse 12, David resumes the process of bringing the ark to Jerusalem. It's clearly a joyous occasion, but the joy is not the only emotion the king displays. In fact, if you trace David's actions from verse 12 through to verse 23, the dominant attitude is actually humility. It's humility. And this is the key takeaway for us. The attitude that marks David's worship is first and foremost humility before the Lord. Notice with me how this plays out in the text. First of all, David humbly submits to God's Word. Verse 13 is brief, but it is very important. Notice what the text says about the transporting of the ark. Verse 13, And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened and a fattened animal. So did you catch it? How are they carrying it now? Not on a cart, but on the poles like God said. They're bearing it. They're carrying it just as God's Word had required. That's humility, friends. Remember, David is the king. So he humbles himself enough to say, we were wrong. Let's submit to God's Word now. Next, David humbly acknowledges God 
as Israel's true king. Look at the description in verses 14 and 15. It's, it's honestly kind of raucous. It's just a raucous celebration. And what often gets our attention in these verses is David's dancing. The word for dancing is used here in the Old Testament only in verses 14 and 16. It's the only time that's used in the Old Testament. And we're not even sure what kind of dancing this is. One guy I read said it was a whirling dervish. I don't know what that is either, so that doesn't help me at all. We're not really sure what it is. The point, however, is not the dancing, but the reason for it. Think about it, friends. What does the ark represent? The rule and reign of God on earth. The ark is, in a sense, God's throne. And now it's heading up to Jerusalem. But who is the king in Jerusalem, at least from the earthly perspective? Who's the king? It's David, of course. Jerusalem is even called the city of David. It's David's capital. But where is King David at this point? Not on his throne, ordering everybody to do stuff, but at the front of God's procession. Beneath God's throne. The ark would have been elevated up on shoulders. David is underneath the throne. You see the point? By celebrating as he does, David is declaring to the people, the Lord is our king. God is worthy of praise. David's wholehearted worship is an act of humility. More than just dancing before the Lord, he's humbling himself before the Lord to teach everyone around him that God is Israel's true king. David also humbly shares God's blessing with the people. Notice verses 17 to 19. I know we skipped over the sad note in verse 16, but we'll get to that in a minute. Notice what happens in verses 17 to 19. David generously distributes gifts to all the people. Or to say it another way, David takes the blessing of God's presence and he gives it freely to those who are around him. He doesn't hoard God's blessing, he gives it. You see, David understands that the divine blessing on his reign is not solely for his sake, it's for the people's sake. He does this for the good of others. It's humility. He shares the blessing just as God intended. Friends, this is actually one of the more significant moments in the book of 2 Samuel. David is the king, but here he acts more like a priest. Did you, did you notice that? David is dressed like a priest. He's wearing only a linen ephod. He pronounces a blessing like a priest, verse 18, and he distributes from the sacrifices, verse 19. All of those are typically priestly functions, but here they are connected, however subtly, with the king. Why is that? Why do the priestly and royal lines appear to get closer here? Well, it's to prepare us for the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. The Lord Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. He fulfills each of those offices perfectly, and He does so for our good. But here's the key, friends. Jesus' work as our priest and king does not spring out of thin air in the New Testament. It's not like the Gospel writers and the Apostle Paul said, oh, let's call Jesus a prophet, priest, and king. No, they knew the Old Testament. They read the Bible. And they saw it very clearly. The roots are here in David's ministry among God's people. So as Christians, we always want to read the Old Testament as Christians. right? We're not just interested in the history of Old Testament Israel. We're interested in reading it as Christians. So as Christians, we should see in David's ministry the shadows of the Savior who would one day intercede for us, make atonement for us, distribute gifts among us, and even now rule over us in grace. 
He shares God's blessing with the people. There's one more display of humility in David's worship. David humbly bears disdain for the sake of God's name. He humbly bears disdain for the sake of God's name. Verse 16 sticks out like a sore thumb in the description of the ark's joyful parade. Not everybody is happy. Michael, Saul's daughter, despises David for his worship. And verses 20 to 23 tell the story of what happens when David gets home. Now, if you've been with us through our series, I understand that Michael is a, is a sympathetic figure to us. I have some sympathy towards her. She was used as a pawn by her own father, who then took her away from David and gave her to another man. Her life has not been easy, to say the least. But in this chapter, Michael is wrong in her response. Notice that three times Michael is described as the daughter of Saul. Do you see that? She's not described as the wife of David. She's described as the daughter of Saul. That's purposeful. At this moment, Michael shares her father's spiritual dullness. Or we could say spiritual blindness. She doesn't have eyes to see what is happening in Jerusalem. Look, the the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant is a reason to celebrate. I don't care if you dislike this man or not. God is coming to His city. It's a reason to celebrate. But the daughter of Saul can't see it. She can't see it. And in verse 20, she unleashes on David with this sarcastic tirade. She doesn't mince words. She accuses David of embarrassing himself in shameful ways. Understand there's nothing in the text to suggest that David did what Michael accuses him of. Yes, he's wearing a linen ephod rather than his royal robes, but he's not uncovering himself. He's not acting shamefully. Michael lacks the eyes to see, so she sneers at and mocks David for his worship. But notice David's response in verse 21. Twice, David stresses that he has been worshiping before the Lord. Do you see it there at the beginning and at the end of the verse? This wasn't about David. It was God's name that compelled David to worship. And in verse 22, David professes his willingness to endure whatever shame that kind of worship might bring. I mean, look again at verse 22. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. So in a sense, he says, you think this is bad? Just wait to what you see next. I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken by them, I shall be held in honor. Friends, do you remember Hannah's prayer from the beginning of 1 Samuel? How she praised God for exalting the lowly and humbling the proud? Do you remember that prayer? David's making the same point here to Michael. David will gladly embrace the lowliness of worship because that's how God's kingdom works. That's how God's name is glorified. Again, Michael is sadly mistaken. She misunderstands the nature of God's kingdom and she lacks the eyes to see what's really going on. Of course, David is not perfect and his marriage to Michael is not good. There's no love between them, it seems, as verse 23 implies. And the entire episode does remind us that there are some significant problems that are going to erupt in David's household. So he's not perfect. But for now, at least in this chapter, David displays the kind of humility that gladly endures shame for the sake of God's name. 
Now, if we step back and put all this together, what do we learn? What do we learn? Well, quite simply, friends, we, we're reminded that we will not experience the fullness of worshiping God without first humbling ourselves in the eyes of others. We're not going to experience the fullness of worshiping God without first humbling ourselves in the eyes of others. Just take David's example and think of how it connects with our own day. Instead of worrying what others think of us, humility calls us to focus in on who God is and what He deserves from us. Instead of solely considering how I can benefit from the worship of God, humility calls me to consider how I can share the blessing with others. And instead of shrinking back when the world mocks us for our devotion, humility calls us to joyfully embrace their disdain as the way to magnify Jesus. What connects each of those responses? Humility. And how can we adopt that attitude in our worship together? Well, there's a lot of things we could say, but I at least think that it starts with this. We can adopt this attitude of humility by simply thinking about ourselves less and thinking more about God and the people He's called us to serve. If we want to mimic David's attitude of humility here, then we should practice the discipline of as we walk into the gathering of worship on each and every Lord's Day, thinking not what can I get today, but who can I serve? And what aspect of God's character can I help to exalt? It's essential for worship, brothers and sisters. God's people must embrace humility. And I pray God would continually give us the grace to do so. Well, we said at the outset that few issues cause as much controversy among Christians as the issue of worship. But what I pray we've learned from this text today is that does not have to be the case. If we will look to God's Word, then we will find clarity and direction for how God is to be worshipped. That's the lesson of David's reformation. God's presence must be cherished, God's holiness must be honored, and God's people must embrace humility. May that kind of worship be true among us, brothers and sisters, for the glory of our great God, who has saved us and now reigns over us mercifully in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray.